The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we thank you so much that we can gather together this morning to study your word. We thank you that in this church age, you have given us the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who teaches us, and helps us to understand your word. Father, we thank you for the way you have described his ministry to us and for us in your word. And we pray that under his teaching ministry this morning, we will be able to understand and assimilate the things that we study. We pray that they would challenge, motivate us, and encourage us to advance in our spiritual life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Now, last time we concluded our study of Galatians chapter 5, verse 21, and I just want to tidy up a couple of loose ends there. There have been several questions asked over the last several months in relation to the entire doctrine of inheritance. And so one thing that we want to clean up is uh, hold your place there, and let's just flip over to Romans chapter 3, uh, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Now, in the last passage, when we were looking at the works of the flesh, we saw the warning at the end of that passage that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the basic thrust of all the teaching in Scripture is that there are two different kinds of inheritance. One is the inheritance that all believers have in common, and that is eternal life, that we will spend eternity in heaven, we will spend eternity with with a resurrection body. The second kind of inheritance is related to rewards, and this is seen in Romans 8, 17. Now, the important thing that I pointed out last time is that punctuation makes a difference. Now, in a recent little study, the following sentence was given to a group of people. Unpunctuated. Every woman in the group was, the the whole group was asked to punctuate the sentence, and this sentence has the words, a woman without her man is nothing. Every woman in the group punctuated the sentence this way. A woman, without her, comma, man is nothing. (laughs) Every man in the group punctuated it this way. A woman, comma, without her man is nothing. So you see, just because you have the words 
by changing the punctuation, you can transform the entire meaning of a sentence. And this is exactly the problem that we saw last time in Romans 8, 16, and 17, and why you have to pay attention to the context. Remember, the New Testament was originally written in Koine Greek, and in many of the original manuscripts, they were written in a style called uncial. And that means it is entire, the entire thing is written in capital letters with no punctuation and each and no space between the words. So they just run on. And you have to make certain interpretive decisions in the process of understanding the text as well as in punctuating it when you transfer it into English. Now, in most versions, or many English versions, they have translated it as follows. As you see in front of you, if you're looking at a New American Standard, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That tells us right away that we're talking about salvation. In verse 16, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, the way that's punctuated, it reads, If children, heirs also, comma, and then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ are in one phrase. Two phrases, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, joined by a conjunction and, which indicates that they are one and the same thing. That would mean that we are saved and heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, both would relate then to being a believer. Both are yours as a believer. They're viewed as synonymous. But the last clause then says, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That introduces a condition. That then would make the way it is punctuated in your English Bible makes salvation conditioned upon suffering with Jesus. Remember, there are no commas in the original. So the only thing that makes sense in interpreting this passage, if we are to preserve the gospel of grace, that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, is to repunctuate it, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, comma, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him. No comma after Christ. So the comma is misplaced. It should come after God and not after Christ, indicating two different categories. If children, that is, by faith alone in Christ alone, the moment of salvation... We are adopted into the royal family of God. We become a child of God and an heir of God. And then the second category is joint heirs with Christ, and that is conditioned upon suffering with Him. And as we saw in the passage in First or in Second Timothy chapter two, if we endure with Him, then we will reign with Him. Okay, that sort of tidies up a loose end from our study of inheritance. Now let's move ahead in our study of Galatians 5, moving into the fruit of the Spirit. 
just to bring you back to where we are in terms of context, this entire section began back in verse 16, and it seems like it's been two or three months since we began our study of this particular passage. It is crucial. I think that Galatians 5, 16 to 26, Romans chapter 6 through 8, Ephesians chapter 5, and maybe one or two other passages in the Gospel of John are perhaps the most crucial passages for the believer to understand what the spiritual life is all about. And unfortunately, these passages are also difficult to translate in places and difficult to interpret, and there are a lot of different issues. So we've taken our time going through here to really understand what these are saying and try to correlate Galatians 5 with Ephesians 5 and with uh, Romans 6 through 8. The first part of this section from verse 16 down through 21 focuses more on the sin nature. The basic mandate is in verse 16, walk by means of the Spirit. And we're given the promise that you will certainly not or it will be impossible then to fulfill the desire of the flesh. Verse 17 tells us that there is a warfare a constant antagonism between the Spirit and the flesh, and every believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and God the Holy Spirit's role and ministry in the life of the believer is to move the believer from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. This is not done apart from your volition, but He is constantly influencing the believer. The sin nature... On the other hand, it's constantly moving the believer towards independence from God and sin. So that means there is a battle. The battle is determined by your volition. Are you going to be positive to the Word of God or are you going to be negative to the Word of God? Verse 18 says that if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. So law comes under the category of the sin nature, which emphasizes Morality, And what we learn from this is that morality and religion are not the spiritual life. Principle, anything that the unbeliever can do is not part of the unique spiritual life of the church age. This is, to me, an obvious, a blatant principle that stands out in the Word of God, and yet I am amazed at how few people really pay attention to the implications of that statement. Anything that the unbeliever can do, and the unbeliever can live a life of of relative integrity and virtue, he can live a life of morality, he can live a life of good works and altruism, he can be involved in all sorts of charitable projects, but that has nothing to do with spirituality. In the same way, a believer can be involved in the same kinds of behaviors, the same kinds of activities, the same virtues, and it can still not be a product of the spiritual life. Just because a believer or a person is a believer and they come to church on a regular basis and they are involved in what appears on the surface to be an application of the Word of God, just because somebody comes to church on a regular basis and studies the Bible and they live a life of morality and uh, moral uprightness, does not mean that they are living by means of God the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Many people confuse that 
And that is the essence of religion. And we have defined religion as man doing the work, and then God is supposed to bless it. God is supposed to approve man for what he does. And that is just the opposite of what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches that the entire principle, not only for salvation, but also for the spiritual life, is grace. God does all the work. Man simply responds in faith alone, and that involves not only faith perception in terms of learning the Word of God, but faith application. If you are living a moral life, we saw, then ultimately it will be evidenced in sin. Paul recognized that in Romans chapter 7, where he said, I don't do the things I want to do, I do the things I don't want to do. And he said that in the midst of a context when he is trying to live the spiritual life on his own power apart from God the Holy Spirit. So we see that if you are living life, you're living it on one of two bases in, according to Galatians chapter 5. Either on the basis of the sin nature or the basis of the Holy Spirit. And the sin nature produces morality. The sin nature produces religion. The sin nature is prone to legalism. That's one of the trends of the sin nature. Let's review the sin nature briefly. The sin nature has an area of weakness that produces personal sins in the area of mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, and overt sins. It also has an area of strength which is not easily, does not easily succumb to temptation, and that produces good works, good deeds, what the Bible calls dead works. When we are tempted, we are tempted from the sin nature, but it is our volition that causes sin, not the sin nature. Our volition acquiesces to the temptations from the area of weakness, and then we're out of fellowship. We're under control of the sin nature, and then we start feeling guilty about it. So we think that somehow the fact that we feel guilty and we have remorse for our sins, that that somehow impresses God. So instead of just simply following the prescription of Scripture to confess our sins, to admit or acknowledge our sins to God, We try to add our own emotion to it, impress God with how sorry we are that we did something and and how much we won't ever do that again. And God in His omniscience knows we'll do it in another day or two. And then, uh, so that doesn't do any good because remorse is nothing more than human works added to grace. So that destroys grace as we've seen in, in our study of Galatians. And so now we start acting on human good. We're still under sin nature control because our confession wasn't any good because we were operating on on, uh, faith plus works. And now we're in human good. And we start producing all kinds of good works. And we just sort of bounce back and forth between human good and personal sin. And if we have a trend, if our sin nature tends to trend towards asceticism and legalism, then we're going to emphasize morality and all sorts of external overt behavior patterns in order to prove to everyone that we uh, really are a believer or a Christian and God is really impressed with us. And that's all the product of the sin nature and ultimately it leads itself to destruction in relationships, disputes, dissensions, factions. Now in contrast to this, we have the production or the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And this is described in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 
and 23. It begins with the phrase, but the fruit of the Spirit. Begins with a contrast to contrast the production of the sin nature with the production of the Holy Spirit. What we see in all of this is that the filling of the Holy Spirit is a condition. Remember this. The filling of the Holy Spirit is a condition. It is not an experience. How do you know if you're filled with the Spirit? It's not because you feel like it. It's not because you're uplifted. It's not because you're excited. It has nothing to do with emotional stimulation. The filling of the Holy Spirit is a condition, not an experience. So therefore, the fruit of the Spirit is character, not emotion. It's character, not emotion. And this is the difference. See, character matters. And the whole issue here is transformation of our character, our inner core nature, from that which is tainted by sin to that which reflects the image of Jesus Christ. So the goal, according to Galatians 4.19, My children, Paul says, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. This is the goal is to form the character of Jesus Christ in the believer. Now, this first phrase gives us a clue as to what is going on. First of all, we have the noun karpos. Looks like this in the Greek. K-A-R-P-O-S. Literally, it means fruit. But fruit is that which is produced from a tree. You have a root, you have a, a system of moving and converting the nutrients in the soil into through the tree, through the trunk of the tree, and out through the branches, and then it produces fruit. So, what we're talking about is a system that is going to produce something. It has to do with production, it is a figure of speech indicating uh, the activity, the result of deeds or what we will call the production of the Holy Spirit. So this is in contrast to the works of the flesh. The production of the Holy Spirit, summarized in four points. First of all, from what we see here, the fruit is specifically stated to be from the source of the Holy Spirit. You have the noun karpos, and then you have the genitive of pneuma. And the genitive, pneuma, is the Greek for the Holy Spirit. And the genitive is a genitive of source, telling us that the source is not your own effort, your own energy, your own desire to reform yourself and pull yourself up by your moral bootstraps. This is something that is uniquely produced by God the Holy Spirit. It is the result of the command to walk by means of the Holy Spirit given back in verse 16. So this once again emphasizes the principle that this character must be the result of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Otherwise, it's what is called wood, hay, and straw at the judgment seat of Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is uniquely from the source of the Holy Spirit. 
Point number two, this is in contrast to the works or activities which are from the source of the sin nature. So there's only two sources. Sin nature, Holy Spirit. Which is it? The determiner is your volition. Point number three, there is no middle ground here. The fact that these qualities and virtues are said to be from the source of the Holy Spirit immediately elevates them beyond any natural or human virtue. These are supernatural qualities because the life of the believer is a supernatural life which requires a supernatural power source. We cannot do this on our own. I can't emphasize that enough. Though man on his own might imitate or counterfeit these qualities, what we see in this, because its description is from the source of the Holy Spirit, these qualities, these virtues are in essence higher than anything that an unbeliever can produce in his life. So in conclusion, point number four, these can only be produced in the believer who is walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. And what we have seen there is that the term walking, peripateo, emphasizes a moment-by-moment dependence upon God. It is based on the filling of God the Holy Spirit. When the believer... When the person puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, at the moment of salvation, salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says it's not by works of righteousness which you have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There is only one condition for salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is not believe and change your life. It is not believe and transform your life morally. It's not believe and go to church. It's not believe and join a church. It's not believe and give money. It's not believe and stop doing anything. It's not believe and start doing anything. It is simply faith alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, according to Acts 16.31. At the instant of salvation, you enter into a permanent relationship with God. This is described by the top circle. We have an eternal relationship with God that can never be broken. We did nothing to earn it or deserve it. We can do nothing to lose it. This is our eternal relationship, and at the instant of salvation, God does 39 irrevocable things to the believer. You cannot lose these things. You cannot reverse these things. They are our possessions for all eternity because of our position in Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. This is in Christ. But we also have a relationship with God on a day-to-day basis. We still have a sin nature. That sin nature can still or still has an influence on our lives and we can still commit any sin we could commit before we were saved. Just because you're a believer does not mean that your sin nature is not as strong, not as powerful as it was before you were saved. So what happens is at the instant of salvation, you got 39 irrevocable things. 
and one revocable thing, and that's the filling of the Holy Spirit. And about five seconds after you were saved, something happened and you got angry or you were jealous or you said something and you were out of fellowship. You did something that was from your sin nature. It was something that falls short of God's absolute perfection, His perfect righteousness. Whatever the righteousness of God condemns or rejects, the justice of God condemns. So at that point, even though you're a child of God and you can never lose that relationship with Him, you are out of fellowship. It is the same way for you parents. It is the same thing that happens when your child disobeys you. At that point, something has frustrated the relationship. The harmony that was there before is no longer there. Because of that disobedience in the child, there has, that child is now in a state of disobedience. And the same thing is true with the believer. He is in a state of disobedience or carnality under the control of the sin nature. Ephesians 4.30 says that there, we grieve the Holy Spirit. First Thess 5.19 says that we quench the Holy Spirit. 1 John 1.6 says that we're walking in darkness. So the only solution at that point that's being under the control of the sin nature, the only solution at that point is 1 John 1.9 to confess our sins. And that's God's grace recovery procedure. It's based on the cross because every sin was paid for at the cross. We don't have to convince God that we're never going to do it again. We don't have to make amends for it. We don't have to have a lot of remorse and guilt over it because it's already paid for. We're not having to pay for it again. It's not a penance issue. It is simply admitting our sins, which in essence is a reminder to God and ourselves that the sin was paid for at the cross. We have a relationship with God based on grace alone and everything that was done at the cross. And at that instant, we are restored to fellowship with God and we recover the filling of God the Holy Spirit. But that only gets us back in a position where we can grow. It doesn't move us forward. Moving forward is walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. So it involves, first of all, being in a position where we are rightly related to the Holy Spirit because we are back in fellowship with God. And then it involves the study, assimilation, and application of the Word of God. Colossians 3.16 says that we are to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. So the two power sources for the spiritual life are the Spirit of God and the Word of God. They do not operate independently of one another. They operate in tandem. And when we are walking by means of the Holy Spirit, we are learning the Word of God assimilating it into our thinking so that it is transforming our thinking according to the principle of Romans 12:2, and we are advancing spiritually. As a result of that, the Holy Spirit is doing something internally in terms of our character with the Word of God. Our volition is exercised to go to church, to be at Bible class at every opportunity, to study the Word of God, to learn it, to meditate on it, to assimilate it into our thinking. But then God the Holy Spirit works inside us to transform us and to produce something in our lives. We can't make that 
happen. There is part of this where our volition is active and part of it where our volition is passive. Let's see if I can help explain this using the illustration of eating. You decide what to eat, when to eat, how fast to eat, and you exercise your volition to put the food in your mouth and to swallow. After you swallow, automatic reflexes take over. The food, go, the food goes into your stomach. Various uh, uh, acids are secreted and enzymes break down the food. It's absorbed. The nutrients are absorbed into the bloodstream and it's passed around to the cell structure of the body. That does not involve anything volitional on your part or my part. And then once those nutrients have been broken down and assimilated into the cell structure of the body, after this metabolism has taken place, then we exercise our muscles in terms of production. Now that's what's the passive part is the, is the assimilation. That's up to God the Holy Spirit. We decide to take in the Word of God and we think about it and we believe it. That's like uh, analogous to swallowing. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who breaks it down and makes it usable and then volition becomes active again and we use it. This is the process where fruit production takes place. And fruit production is not to be confused with Christian service. This is a very simple mistake that is often made. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is not Christian service. What do I mean by Christian service? Christian service is the production in your life related to your royal priesthood and your royal ambassadorship. At the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, you enter into the family of God and you are made a royal priest. Every believer in the church age is a priest to God. And as a result of your priesthood to God, there are certain things that go along with that. And you are also made an ambassador for Jesus Christ. As part of your priesthood, you have certain things such as prayer and giving are all related to your royal priesthood. In terms of your ambassadorship, you have things such as witnessing, teaching, encouraging other believers with doctrine. Now, that's Christian service. That is a totally different category from the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, the fruit of the Spirit has to be there, has to begin, before this has any value. Otherwise, this is nothing more than just like the unbeliever trying to go out there and perform certain actions on his own strength. This is the problem in most churches. I remember when I was a young pastor, somebody came up to me and said, Now, Pastor, if you really want this church to go to grow, as soon as you get visitors and they walk in the door, you need to find some job for them to do. And as soon as they have some sense of participation and ownership in the church, then, then that's, they'll stick around and the church will grow. The only problem with that is you don't know, A, if they're a believer, or B, if they have any understanding of doctrine, and people need to come and sit and study and learn the Word of God and grow spiritually. In that process, they'll discover what their spiritual gifts are, they'll discover what their spiritual responsibilities are, and then this will naturally, over time, produce uh, Christian service. 
and it will be the product of God the Holy Spirit, and it will be a product of their own spiritual growth. Too often what people want to do in the church is put the cart before the horse, and they ignore the whole process of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity because they're really running the church on the basis of the principles of human viewpoint and a corporation and any other group that you might be involved in, the garden club or a social club or whatever it might be, and not the church, the unique body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christian service is to be distinguished completely from the fruit of the Spirit. Now, since the fruit of the Spirit is a condition and not an experience or an emotion, since it has to do with character, Paul gives us criterion by which we can determine whether or not the Holy Spirit is producing in our lives. How do you know if you're walking by means of the Holy Spirit or you're just in some level of self-deception? Because over a period of time, you will see transformation taking place in your life, in your character. If you do not see this transformation taking place in your character, then you are not walking by means of the Holy Spirit. Someplace there is a short circuit, and you need to take a look at your life and see where that is. So verse 22 begins, the fruit of the Spirit is, and then we get a grocery list of various characteristics of the believer who is walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not an all-inclusive list. Neither is it given in any order. I've studied this passage many times over the last 25 years or more, and I have yet to have figured out any particular order to this list. And if you look at other passages that talk about the production of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer then the order is different. So I don't think there is any particular order here other than what came to mind to the Apostle Paul as he wrote this. So let's look at them. The first three have to do with mental attitude transformations. Now I want you to make sure you get that in your notes. These are mental attitudes. These are not emotions. This has to do with the orientation of your thinking. Once again, this is not emotion or feeling. When it, as soon as we see words like love and joy and peace, the first thing that pops into everybody's mind is some kind of emotional experience. But that's not what this is talking about at all. It's talking about a mental attitude orientation that is produced by the Holy Spirit. Emotions are not produced by the Holy Spirit. Now, we live in an age that wants to deify emotion. That comes because we're all caught up with all kinds of psychological techniques that ever since Freud, everybody's been running around trying to get in touch with their emotions. No matter what kind of therapy system it is, whether it's reality therapy or, or cognitive emotional therapy, or talk therapy, or screen therapy, or primal therapy, or whatever the therapy might be, it's all related to somehow rolling around in your emotions. And that's just the opposite of the principle of Scripture. Now, the first of these characteristics is love, not an emotional love. Now, this is very hard for some of you to understand. You have been so caught up 
in 20th century American sentimental romantic concepts of love all your life that it's going to take you probably five or six hundred hours of Bible study before you ever realize that there are categories of love that have nothing to do with emotions but will in fact be destroyed by emotion. You see, the first knee-jerk reaction that most of us have because of the pressure of cultural training is that love is emotion. But what we see in the Scriptures is a love that is non-emotional. Now, that does not mean that it doesn't have an impact on emotions at times. But this is a love, that a mental attitude that completely overrides emotion so that when emotions want to go one way in terms of reaction, anger, resentment, bitterness, hostility, this love overrides so that there is stability, there is forgiveness, and there is grace in action. This is the Greek word agape. There are two Greek words used in the New Testament for love. The Greek language is much more precise in this area than English. A-G-A-P-E. Greek has about four or five different words for love, only two of which are used in the New Testament. The other word that is used, the other noun, is philos. And philos love, P-H-I-L-O-S, is related to a close, intimate friendship. There is much more of, a, of what you might call an emotional connotation here than here, but even then I hesitate to say that because it's not necessarily emotional. It has more to do with intimacy than emotion. But agape is a much different concept. This category of love goes far beyond emotions. This is the kind of love that will enable you to handle people testing in all of its forms. It will enable you to handle rejection, hostility, animosity, anger, resentment, and all sorts of system testing that is antagonistic to you. So whenever you run into anything that is hostile... You have an option, as always. Option one is to react and send nature control of the soul. Option number two is to respond through the application of doctrine. Now, the first thing I want to note is that if you're going to respond to a situation, somebody does something to you that hurts you deeply, I'm not saying to deny it. I'm not saying to act as if it didn't happen. You have to live in reality. But the first thing you have to do if you're going to apply the Word of God is you have to think, not emote. When you start emoting, you're not going to respond in love. You're going to respond in sin nature control in some kind of revenge motivation, vindictiveness, try to get back at the person and hurt them as well. The kind of love that we're talking about is unconditional love or impersonal love. Now, what do I mean by those two different words? When you make a statement like, I love you, I is the subject, you is the object, and love is the verb. Now, most of the time when somebody says, I love you, they're saying there are certain things about you that I really like. 
As a matter of fact, when I'm with you, I just feel uplifted all the time, and I feel good about myself. And usually what happens when two people get married, they look at each other, and what they're really saying in those marriage vows, they don't hear those words, for better or for worse. What they hear is that I'm in love with you because you make me feel so good that for the rest of our life, I'm going to let you make me feel this good. And that's just the opposite of what love is all about and what marriage is all about. I love you. When all of the value, all of the attractiveness is in the object of love, then as soon as that attraction disappears, as soon as there is something unattractive or that aspect of the object of love, that aspect of attractiveness is somehow marred, then the love is gone. And this is what we mean by conditional love. When you say, I love you in this kind of love, it is based upon some sort of personal relationship with the object of that love. Therefore, it is called personal love. Now, this is not the case when we talk about this kind of love in this particular passage. When someone says, I love you, and all of the value, all of the virtue is in the person doing the loving, and the person who is being loved is unattractive, unlovable, and obnoxious, in terms of their basic character and attributes to the person doing the loving, but the person loves because of virtue, then that is unconditional love, and it does not even require a personal relationship. For example, you can be in a situation where someone whom you don't even know does something to hurt you or harm you, and you can respond to them with this kind of love so it does not depend upon personal knowledge or a personal relationship. So we use the phrase impersonal love. Because everything depends upon the person loving and nothing depends upon the object of love. It is a non-emotional love that seeks the highest and best for the object of love. This means that unconditional love and impersonal love is also objective love. And personal love is often subjective. And that's why it's determined, it goes fluctuates up and down depending upon the feelings and emotions of the person doing the loving. Personal love is inherently, when it comes from sinners, is inherently unstable. And you can never have a long-term relationship with anyone when the only kind of love that is present is personal love. Because it is, it is inherently unstable. The only way that you can have any kind of long-term stability in love is to have impersonal or unconditional love. Now, an unbeliever can 
imitate that to some level. But in order to really make it work for an unbeliever, they just have to go into a phase of of denial in terms of reality because ultimately they can't do this. This is a product that is uniquely that of God the Holy Spirit. Now the example for this is what God did in salvation. This is why doctrine is important. You will never understand love if you don't understand salvation. The more you study the doctrines of soteriology, the more you understand all that Christ did for us on the cross in terms of redemption, reconciliation, propitiation, expiation, all of the doctrines of salvation, the more you understand that, the more you will understand what love is all about because the example of love is what took place. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. Now, in that passage, what we see is God on the one hand as the subject. God loves you. You are obnoxious to God as an unbeliever. You are a sinner. God is perfect righteousness, and you were a sinner. But the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God must condemn. God, as perfect righteousness, cannot have fellowship with any creature that lacks righteousness. And so we were obnoxious to God. That same passage in Romans 5.5 tells us that we were at enmity with God. We were not just that in a position where we weren't attractive to God, we were antagonistic to God, and we were viewed as enemies to God. We were hostile to God. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the actions of love then were dependent exclusively on the character of God and had nothing to do with the character of the object. This is why you must develop this understanding of love if you're going to make it in marriage. Because there are going to be times when that spouse of yours, the one whom you love and adore 90% of the time, is going to do things that aggravate you, antagonize you, upset you, and send you right up the wall. But what enables you to handle that with poise, stability, and real love is the fact that you understand the character of God and that changes how you relate to people. You see, we're able to love people because of who God is and what Jesus Christ did for us. This is why it's so incredible. The more we study the Word and learn about God, the more it's going to revolutionize how you relate to people. But it's all based on your understanding of God. That's why we go through an intensive study of Scripture over and over again is because we, the more we understand who God is and what He has done, the more it impacts our relationships. So in unconditional love and impersonal love, God based on His character, does all the work, and we respond to it. That's the model. John 13, 35, Jesus is addressing His disciples just before He went to the cross, and He said, By this, all men will know that you are My disciples 
if you have love for one another. And so in that passage, he is saying that the hallmark characteristic of a believer is this kind of unconditional love for other believers. Now, you all know, and there are some of you here that could, don't look around right now, but if you looked around, you would see people in this congregation that you're not very attracted to. In fact, you may, may have known them for some time, and you really don't want to have anything to do with them. You don't find anything about them that is at all attractive. And yet the Scripture says that you are to love them. Now, God is a realist. God knows that we have personality differences and we have all kinds of things that can cause problems. Nevertheless, because of the work of God the Holy Spirit, we can exercise the same level of impersonal love toward every single believer. But it's only going to happen because our character is transformed by the study of God's Word. It can't happen on our own. We can't reach inside of ourselves and say, I'm going to start loving that person just because I want to and I ought to. Because we're going to grow and advance and God is going to form the character of Christ in us. John 15:9, Jesus said, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Notice the relationship there. If you keep my commandments, you have to know the commandments before you can keep the commandments. It's talking about obedience. You learn the Word, and then you assimilate it, and then you apply it. That's the progression. Keeping is application. You can't apply what you haven't learned. And you can't learn something unless you make it a priority and you exercise discipline and consistency and concentration and, and think about it a lot to assimilate it into your thinking. And then there is application. And what Jesus says is that love is not divorced from this process. You don't just jump out there and say, Oh, I'm a believer now. I'm just going to love everybody. Isn't it wonderful? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So it is directly related to the process of learning Bible doctrine and making it part of your thinking. John 15:13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friend. So it involves a sacrificial element, which was exemplified by Christ and is expected of us. Ephesians 5:2. And walk by means of love. Just as Christ also loved you, there's the model, there's the pattern. That's what we are to emulate, just as Christ also loved you. So if you don't understand who Jesus Christ is, why Jesus Christ came, what Jesus Christ did on the cross, you can't love. I don't care how much you get the rosy glow and how those feelings well up inside of you, it is not the kind of love the Scripture is talking about. If you don't know Christ, you don't understand what He did on the cross, you can't love. The more you understand it, the more you will develop a capacity for love, and the more you will be able to love, and you will be able to get past all of those things that come up in life that want to fragment relationships. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma." And then 1 Corinthians 13.4 describes some characteristics of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. So how do you know if this kind of love is developing in your life? Well, there are four characteristics that you can use for a little self-evaluation in front of the mirror of the Word of God. The second characteristic is joy. The production of the Spirit is love, joy. Joy is defined as inner happiness, sharing the happiness of God. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. It is not a giddiness. It is not an emotional excitement. The joy here is talking about an inner happiness that goes beyond mere human happiness. It is a stable happiness. It is a happiness that is despite the circumstances, not based on circumstances. This is a joy that has as its focus... Once again, who God is and what He has done for us. Because when our focus is on God, then it will not matter what the circumstances are. That's why in Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul said, I have, I have abounded and I have done without. I, in other words, I've gone through prosperity testing and I've gone through adversity testing. I can do all things. I can live in any circumstance. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because that strength comes from Christ and from doctrine resident in the soul of the believer, then you are able to go through any set of circumstances and have joy, inner happiness, sharing the happiness of God. It's the happiness that Christ had, the joy He had that He has given to us. John 15.10, If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And then he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. So joy is related to love, and it's related to obedience to God's mandates. The third category, the third production of the Holy Spirit, is peace. From the Greek word, arene. Looks like this, E-I-R-E-N-E. Now, this is not world peace. This is not peace, the absence of conflict. This is peace in the soul. It has to do with tranquility, contentment, and inner harmony. It has its roots in the peace we have with God because of reconciliation. This is the point of Romans chapter 5. Because man now has peace with God... Because the sin problem has been dealt with, you can now have a mental attitude of peace. But until the sin problem is dealt with, you cannot have this kind of inner peace and tranquility. John 14:27, Jesus said to his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. Notice peace is juxtaposed to mental attitude sins of fear, worry, and anxiety. So it is just the opposite of mental instability. It is based on our relationship with God. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're living in carnality based on the sin nature, you will not have this level of peace and stability. Romans 8, 6, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life 
and peace. Romans 4.6 says, Be anxious for nothing. Once again, we're mandated or prohibited to worry or have anxiety. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard and defend your hearts and minds. Now, what we're seeing here is just another way of talking about what we've covered in James. That is that God has provided a defensive structure for our soul. It is produced by the Holy Spirit. We've talked about confession as God's grace recovery procedure and filling of the Holy Spirit, the power base for living the Christian life, for walking by means of the Spirit. We'll see faith rest mentioned. We'll see grace mentioned and doctrinal orientation, personal sense of our eternal destiny comes. That's part of peace. Because we know that we have been saved and our eternal destiny is heaven, that limits anxiety. No fear of death. No worry. We've talked about love in terms of the love triplex, personal love for God the Father, the motivator, unconditional love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. And all of this culminates in inner happiness. This is a soul fortress. Our soul is strengthened by the Word of God as the Holy Spirit teaches us. And as we assimilate it into our soul, it is strengthened so that this becomes, as it were, a defensive structure surrounding our soul so that we can handle any situation, any circumstance in life. And all of this is produced by God, the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that in just a minute. So the first three are love, joy, and peace. Then we come to the fourth one. From here out, from patience on... It deals with its application. So the first three focus on, if there's any order to this, the first three relate to the mental attitude transformation in the believer. Because your mental attitude has been transformed, then it affects your relationships. Patience. Macrothemia. King James translated it long-suffering. It relates to steadfastness, endurance, endurance in relationship to people testing, hanging in there in difficult circumstances, continuing to apply the Word of God no matter how difficult it might be, waiting upon the Lord, even though it may be years before you see the answers to prayers. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Colossians 3.12 says, And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, a heart's a mental attitude. It's not an emotion. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Many of those same words, compassion, humility, or excuse me, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience are all mentioned in our passage in Galatians 5 as the production of the Holy Spirit. So we are commanded to put on a mental attitude characterized by compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Ephesians 4.2, with all humility and gentleness, those words will run into again, with patience, 
that is, macrothemia, long-suffering, showing forbearance to one another in love. Notice how again and again these basic characteristics are woven together in different, different ways to characterize the life of the believer. The fifth is kindness. In the Greek, it's Christotes. C-H-R-E-S-T-O-T-E-S. Christotes, and it has to do with kindness. This relates to grace orientation. As you realize that everything you have in Christ is related to the work that God did for you, you didn't earn or deserve any of it, that begins to impact the way you deal with other people. You begin to treat them not on the basis of what they've earned or deserved, but on the basis of God's character. We are to treat one another in love. We are to forgive one another in the same way that God has forgiven us for Christ's sake. So we base our relationship with other people on God's pattern. And the result is that we deal with them in kindness. This is also undeserved merit. Kindness is graciousness towards people because you understand grace. It's being polite. It's dealing with people not on the basis of what they deserve, but on the basis of God's character. Ephesians 2.7, In order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So just as God exercises kindness towards us, we are to exercise that towards others. Goodness. Agathosune, this is intrinsic good. It has to do with a generosity of spirit, an application of doctrine. And then last in this verse is translated faithfulness, which is a horrible translation. It is this word in the Greek, pistis. It is not pistos. Here's the difference. P-I-S-T-O-S. This is an adjective. This is a noun. The adjective means faithful. The noun means faith or trust. If you translate pistis faithful, then you have a lot of theological problems. For by grace you have been saved through faithfulness. That's not what it says. So pistis is faith, not faithfulness, and has to do with the fact that as we grow... God the Holy Spirit strengthens our faith. How much faith do you need in order to be saved? Jesus said, like the seed, like a mustard seed, which is a very small, tiny seed. But as you grow by learning the Word of God, as you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, then God the Holy Spirit strengthens and intensifies that faith, that ability to trust God, and it grows. So that itself is a a result of learning and applying the Word, and then the Holy Spirit strengthens it. Well, that gets us about two-thirds of the way through the production of the Holy Spirit. We have two more characteristics to cover, but we're out of time, so we'll pick that up next time. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for the opportunity to study Your Word, to be challenged by these things, to realize that Your Holy Spirit has been given to us
to transform our character into the very image of Jesus Christ, that we may reflect Him in our thinking and in our relationships, that you might be glorified, that we might stand as a testament and as monuments to your grace. Father, we pray if there's anyone here this morning that is uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take the time right now to make that certain. All you have to do is utter a silent prayer to God the Father where you express your faith in Jesus Christ, that you accept the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, that you believe that He is the only way to salvation, that He died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again the third day. That's all that's required. Faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would remind us of the things we've studied today, that we might be challenged by them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.